Welcome to The Staff Room, an education podcast that takes a look into the world of pedagogy. In this series, we meet educators far and wide to chat about teaching and learning and share outstanding practice. My name is Michael Royale, and I'm sitting here with Tessa Johnson, and we're coming to you from Corpus Christi College in Perth, Australia. This special episode, we'll be chatting to UK-based educator and author, Teacher Toolkit, Ross Morrison-McGill, who will be chatting to us about his hugely popular book, Mark, Plan, Teach. Stay with us to hear his philosophy on saving time, reducing workload, and making an impact on learning. Uh, my, my passion is common sense, uh, reducing teacher workload, because... You know, you look at the marketization of education, you know, global education reform, uh, teachers are just being squeezed. Um, good teaching is good teaching. Mark Plan Teacher brings it back to its basics. I'm Michael Royale. And I'm Tessa Johnson. And this is The Staff Room. Okay, so we are in episode three now of our podcast, uh, starting off with Ross McGill, who Michael, I'm presuming you're particularly excited for because I've, I've seen his book uh, lying on your desk today. So can you tell us about what we should expect there? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I mean, his book's just organized really well. It's basically in different sections. So mark, plan and teach. And those are divided into 10 tried and tested practical techniques that us as teachers can use. And uh, myself as a new teacher, I just think it's really beneficial because these simple techniques are designed to save time and reduce workload. Yeah, I know um, Ross is quite anti sort of gimmicks, isn't he? So I know he's got a, a section in there about the feedback stamp and sort of that that sort of you know worthless in the classroom. And it's we as teachers shouldn't just buy into gimmicks and do things for the sake of it, which um, you know is quite interesting and, and quite a different perspective. And I think he's got more sense of you know the gritty reality of the classroom than um, a lot of other theorists may have. Yeah, exactly. And I've actually tried uh, one or two of his techniques, which have worked really well, in particular, the yellow box and life marking. Oh, yeah, I've done life marking as well. That works really, really well. Great way to formatively assess. Yeah, definitely. So, shall we get started? I think we shall. All right, let's go. Ross Morrison McGill, or Teacher Toolkit, is the most followed educator on Twitter. With nearly 200,000 followers... Ross is widely known as a passionate educator, author, and award-winning blogger who shares inspirational ideas and outstanding practice worldwide. Ross's most recent book, Mark, Plan, Teach, has received rave reviews online and offers punchy practical advice and common-sense approaches for teachers to make an impact on learning. Uh, so, welcome, Ross, and thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us today. Hello. Uh, well, it's good morning here. I think it's good evening for you, isn't it? But thanks for having me. Yeah, it is just um, about. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I have been teaching 25 years. Um, uh, I trained to be a teacher when I was 19 years old uh, down in South East London. Um, Oh, uh, 17 years of those, those those 25 were in school leadership. Um, the last three as a, a vice principal or a deputy head teacher. I'm not sure of the terminology you have in Australia. Um, so almost kind of in charge of an entire uh, secondary school. So, um, you know, schools generally with 1,500 students, uh, about 200 staff. Um, so big, complicated places to work. Uh, very exciting. Um, about 10 years ago, I started blogging. I lost my job, so I took voluntary redundancy. My son was born premature. Um, so I was out of school for about 
probably just six weeks, but I kind of expected to be out for about three months or something like that. But I got bored, but I started blogging, got back into teaching, and I, I carried on blogging. Um, well, I started blogging about my son because he was born premature. Um, and then I start when he was home and safe, I started blogging about teaching because I kind of found a love of writing and got back into school and kept up with the blog and, and the demands of being a school leader. And, and 10 years later, the blog's read all around the world and the teacher talk at Twitter channels has gone a bit out of control. It's become um, an accidental business um, where I'm now doing it full time. Uh, so I've been training all around the UK. Um, been to Canada, Spain. I'm off to Germany a couple of times, Switzerland in the next few months. So it's really exciting. And uh, I'm just sharing my passion for common sense, uh, good classroom ideas against the bureaucracy of the, the kind of status quo or the machine. So, um, yeah, that's me in a, a, a quick snapshot. That's fantastic. If ever you're keen to come over to Australia as well and add that to your list. I'd love yeah, I've got a best friend in Brisbane. Uh, I've been over to visit about seven or eight years ago, so I'd love to come back over. Yes, yeah, so if there's anyone listening and uh, looking for someone to come over and share some good ideas or, or, or kind of inspire or provoke, uh, I'd love to come over, yeah. I'm sure there will be. Uh, we're really big fans of your book, Mark Plan Teach. Can you tell our listeners about it and who it's aimed for? Uh, my, my passion is common sense. Uh, reducing teacher workload because you know you look at the marketization of education you know global education reform uh, teachers are just being squeezed um, you know paperwork trails we are teaching kids for a year and then having to evidence all the work we've done for the past year um, good teaching is good teaching and, and, and Mark Plan Teach brings it back to its basics um, Mark is essentially assessment, you know, questioning, but uh, I didn't think assess, plan, teach was quite a catchy uh, book mm-hmm. title. So I went with Mark yep. um, plan, teach, and plan, and I went with Mark in that particular order because as training teachers, we plan a lesson first and we might go off and teach the kids and see what happens and might have some marking, but actually we should use assessment to inform our lesson planning. And then it's a cycle. So that was the principle. But um, in the book, there is probably about 30, well, there's 30 different chapters and they are training sessions in themselves. And they were, they evolved from three years of research with my 100 teachers in my own school about a mark plan teach ideology, trying to have a one-page kind of guidance or a set of expectations. And I guess with my Twitter audience, as each time our staff consulted, I shared and blogged and tweeted my views. So as some things kind of crashed and burned or other things were retweeted around the world, I, I really got a sense of what was working. And... Each time that was shared, I was exposed to more research, more ideas, and, and just always reading and writing about it as we were going through it and then living it in the classroom um, with my colleagues. It just became a bit of a, a, a handbook, I suppose, not just in terms of here's a very simple idea, but here's some research. And then working with Tim O'Brien, who's an ex-teacher and a psychologist, Tim gave his psychological insights as to why this idea would work. Not better than others, but why this idea would work. Um, so, you know, I put throughout the book its context, you know, it's London London teachers, London kids, secondary school, you know, not every idea will work everywhere, but, you know, using my 25 years of experience, you know, thousands of colleagues I've worked with, um, I think it's all amalgamated together, but also with the nature, I guess, evolving the book through social media discussion, it's probably 
you know, on reflection, never thought about it, but it's probably evolved through a lot of social media connection as well. Um, so live research, even to the point when I was putting together the last parts of the book, I was still tweeting out some views and, and having just had a school inspection that was quite a brutal process and kind of made my decision to kind of step out and do something different. Um, you know, if you read the the opening dedication or the, the last very last chapter of Call to Arms, um, I was a bit more honest than I would normally be, um, known that these words would be written in the book forever. So, yeah, it's, it was a, a, a cathartic process, but um, very much stooped in research and a, and, and a touch of psychology here or there. So does that uh, answer? Oh, most definitely. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Good. Um, I wanted to just ask you, you mentioned in your one of the messages is quality, not quantity. Um, would you say that working smarter and not harder is your sort of philosophy? Absolutely. I mean, if I go back 10 years when I first put out the five-minute lesson plan, uh, I'm, I'm confident that you guys over in Australia have used it and seen it. Um, I, I, was, I was shared that template by uh, a couple of educationalists who I've known for a long time. And I, it sat on my desk for years, and I tried it with my own newly qualified teachers. And it was a paper version. I created a template out of it. And at the time in England, 2011, we were grading teachers in individual lessons and things like that. So I scribbled it down in five minutes, true to its name, and tweeted a picture just before I was being inspected in a lesson. And I guess being brave about those, you know, that certain that circumstance, uh, the that particular tweet went viral uh, to a degree. So I thought, well, let me think about it a bit more obviously it resonates with a lot of teachers but over the last 10 years it's evolved into lots of incarnations even to the point where you know now I'm speaking at lots of conferences I want to create a five minute keynote plan because not not that it takes five minutes to, but it's a it's a crib sheet of, of thinking and, and what I advocate with the five minute lesson plan is that it's a, it's, a, it's not a form filling exercise it's a thought process and in the cold light of day teachers are stretched they have no time and I, I think of everything that I've done throughout my entire career even to when I was a student I got, I got very bored and frustrated by sitting in a meeting for an hour when something can be done in 10 minutes um, and I think there's a danger that um, you might lose the details but um, particularly in teaching, there's so much to do and so little time that it's really important that we strip back lots of nonsense. We we kind of get to the core components and then we give people choices. Um, you know, we like to give kids choices in classrooms. We should do it as teachers. You know, we don't always have to consume teachers' time with meetings and data analysis. Um, so I, I think common sense and stripping things back to its bare bones is pretty much in my DNA. And I think that probably echoes through the book and through my resources that I've shared online. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm probably making the complicated a bit more simple to understand, uh, um, whether it's on a, a one-page sheet or a teaching idea or, or whatever it would be. But does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, on that note, actually, we, I mean, both Michael and I, we totally understand it really resonates with us um, that we are so stretched for time and that time is so precious to the teacher. What do you think yeah. the effects of excessive teacher workload is on the, on the staff well-being, having been in leadership yourself? Well, well, 
the impact is, you know, UK, I'm, I'm sure you've got the same things in, in Australia and I can kind of, you know, I've got a bit more time to read and research a lot more um, since I've, I've stepped out. But, um, you know, we can't recruit enough teachers. There's more teachers leaving the profession. Uh, there's more younger teachers because I guess people, you know, there's a lot of teachers coming in later in the career. Uh, you know, people have a career change after 20 years or whatever it would be. Um, so we're, we're struggling to recruit teachers my age or a bit older. Um, and the government are missing their targets, spending billions of pounds to recruit teachers. Um, I'm not sure what it's like in Australia. I'm assuming it's the same, same challenge. Um, it ultimately boils down to if we want a society in Australia or England where we can walk down the streets, kids are safe, love thy neighbour, all those, that it's got to start at education because if it doesn't start at home and it's also a disadvantage because one child has parents, the other child doesn't, then school makes a bit of a difference. Um, how, what, what we want to teach at school and how schools might look like in the future, I think needs to be up for debate um, because as we get more immersed in research and psychology and what works and mental health and well-being, um, we're starting to discover that maybe schools, you know it, sitting in exams uh, and desks and whatever else, might not be the best way for our kids. Uh, and ultimately, we want to have a society where everyone puts learning at the heart of what they want to do. Uh, but how we define jobs and whatever else it is, is up for debate. So I think we still very much work in a an old education model about 150 years old that kind of kick-started over in the States and it's evolved all around the world. Um, I've been at a few schools recently where they're flipping that totally. Um, Kaps Kulun, I think it's called, pronounced, uh, from Sweden. Um, but, you know, that's the kids' side, but then there's the teacher side. And, and ultimately the message is if, if our governments don't fund schools enough, then head teachers cannot be creative to give teachers that little bit more time to do things during the school day. Yes, our core business is to teach and to mark and to plan, but I can't mark a set of 30 books in the, in the school environment when kids are running up and down the corridor. I need somewhere kind of safe and, and calm um, where I can concentrate and do the assessment properly. And that can be achieved in the school, but only if, you know, a Wednesday afternoon, every school had a national CPD Wednesday where kids went home early and every teacher could either mark or conduct their own action research together or with colleagues in another school. And for me, those answers are really simple and it, it, it won't cost a lot. And I know in, Amer uh, in places like America, Australia, New Zealand, you have sabbaticals and things like that. And it's quite alien for us over here. And we've, we've floated the idea here for 30, 40 years. And only now the government last month announced five million pounds for teachers after their seventh or 10th year. Now, we've got half a million teachers in the UK. So when you get to a certain salary after seven years, when you divide that five million pound by those number of people, it equates to about 130 teachers. So it's not very many people that are entitled to have a 12 week sabbatical or, or a year sabbatical. Um, because if you take the teacher out of school, the funding also needs to replace someone to come and replace that teacher who's out doing whatever. So the, the key message is funding. We get more teachers, more time. We can educate our kids. We can have more time to do the right thing and, and have and, and get more immersed in research and do things properly for our kids and at the same time the government needs to rethink um, what's best for our kids and our society. So do you think this is quite a new priority? You said it's been spoken about for a long time but you think uh, now the wheels are sort of turning, getting, getting the wheels in motion? No, I, I think 
I think I think people have thought about these for a long time. I think um, I th for me, you know, my new research. I'm going to start my doctorate at, at Cambridge in October. Um, I, I think social media has really changed the way we we operate, we work, and how we learn. And you know, there are dangers and downsides to that, as we know. Um, you know, we can easily get immersed in echo chambers, and we follow people that echo our own views. You know. But that aside, we can suddenly, you know, we can connect with one another halfway around the world all of a sudden from tweets, and now we're doing a podcast. Um, so how we are working is very different. And, and, you know, my son who's six, he's coding, he's playing Minecraft, he's connecting with one or two of his mates. Um, you know, he could be a vlogger. You know, YouTube might not exist in 20 years, but he might be doing the, the, the hologram version of YouTube. We don't know. And, and I think it's quite exciting times, but we have to... Uh, have more time to understand that, um, you know, the pitfalls, the benefits. And I guess with social media, we can walk in wider in our lens and be exposed to a lot more research than we've ever had before. Um, you know, if I think back 25 years when I first started, you just did what your line manager told you to do. And you were lucky if you went on a course once once or twice a year, uh, you got a, a folder and, and that was pretty much it. The internet still took, you know, if you clicked one page on the internet, it took 20 seconds for it to load up. Um, so we're in a different world now and I think it's quite exciting for everyone, particularly teachers. Yeah, I think as well, like you're saying with blog posts, that's so accessible now through social media. And, yeah. you know, you're way more inclined to look at, you know, 10 tips to better staff well-being or whatever it is yes. rather than yeah. you know, to go seek out a book pick it up start at chapter one it's just it's so quick yeah. and it's so much more accessible I, I think you know my blogging journeys I've, I've taken a bit more seriously over the years um i've started to look at analytics what works what pop, you know my most popular blogs without a doubt are marketing tips or well-being strategies and then you look at how many t you know we get flooded with information 24 7 uh, online um you need to capture people's attention. So as over years, you know, writing huge essays in a blog post or spending six months to a year writing a book, um, you realize that people need one or two minutes max, very simple takeaway strategies, and then they've got a reference or something they can download. Um, so I, I've discovered that through writing my blog for 10 years, that um, you know, even just having the reading time at the top of each blog post really helps someone when they first connect, right, this will take me one minute to read or three minutes, and they can gauge whatever they're doing in the day, you know, whether it's in the busy classroom or walking to, to catch a bus to go home from work, um, suddenly you can you can get your tips really quickly um, on a blog post. And I think it's um, there's a lot more teachers in England now blogging. Everyone can do it, and it's great. Uh, you seem to be a massive advocate for verbal feedback. Can you explain why? Yes. Um, I... Yeah. You tell me if it's different over in Australia. I um, I teach my kids. I um, talk to my kids every day. I tell them what to do, X, Y, Z. But uh, Mr. McGill, the deputy head teacher, says in the policy, you need to evidence that when you talk to your children, they act on your feedback. So how are we going to do that? Well, when you talk to Ross, you can say, right, fill in this paragraph, explain what a volcano means, label the diagram. So Ross then rewrites down what Mr. McGill has said. I then stamp his book with a verbal feedback stamp, and then we create a written dialogue. I said this, you said this, I said this, I then did this, and we create a dialogue on top of the work that's been completed to prove to simply someone that pops in for five minutes in three months' time or in six months' time that the student has acted on the things that I've said in the classroom. 
And a point I made earlier is teachers now have the evidence, the work or the progress a child has made dating back the last academic year. So there's a lot of trust gone from, you know, we want to be immersed in, in effective ideas, but we also, you know, we're now tracking kids' mental health with loads of coloured cells, red, red, green, amber. Um, you know, ultimately, we just want to talk to kids. Everyone needs to be listened to, including ourselves, you know, with our line managers, whoever it would be. And... We, there's loads of great apps also where teachers can now talk on their phone. Um, it can record. You know, I could do a demonstration here, but I wouldn't know if it would pick up on your on your podcast. Obviously not. But if I can speak to my phone through Alexia Siri, what I can say that can type as I speak would be three times quicker than what you can write. So that's a great workload tip for me as a teacher. But if I could then PDF that or email it to a student, cut it out, stick it in the book, then great. But where... Where it's all been lost is we now have to evidence everything that we say when ultimately we need to get back to a place where we just trust the teacher to be uh, very explicit, very specific about what they want the student to know or to act upon, but also be very implicit about um, what the feedback is. And, and research shows, you know, direct instruction, you know, cl teacher clarity. For me, I call it stickability is what do you want the kids to learn and focus on that rather than the doing and that shows great impact on disadvantaged students uh, so for me I just want to get back to a place where teachers are allowed to talk to the kids and they don't necessarily have to rubber stamp every conversation or Ross has to write down what Mr McGill said then Mr McGill has to respond and then Ross has to show that he's done it before we can move on to the next piece of work so in England we call that triple marking um, and, you know, it's all right to get immersed in some deep marking. Um, I'm not going to put a number on it, but if you're doing it every lesson, then you're just doing triple the amount of workload, and, and it's, it's, not, it's, it's not sensible. It, there's a need and a time and a place, but um, I, wouldn't put it, uh, I wouldn't put a number on it. It would be against my beliefs. Yeah, definitely. It seems very much like double handling. Um, yes. So we've actually adopted some of your techniques into our practice. Uh, for example... Tess and I have both actually used live marking. Um, right, so fantastic. which practical idea has made a real difference in your classroom? Um, so I'm a design technology teacher. Um, I have a visualizer, so you know, the little cameras you have on your desk. Hmm. So and I guess that's live marking. I, I put the kids drawing or paragraph or whatever it would be, or I would model it myself, and, and kids would watch me do it on the screen. If it was Wi-Fi enabled, I could go around the classroom and everyone could see their work on the board. Um, or a child's piece of work could come underneath. So along with live marking, as I'm giving that feedback, a great technique is the yellow box. Where, um, and it doesn't have to be yellow. I'm not going to tell you off to use a pink or a red pen. Um, essentially, it's, uh, I look at it as a coaching methodology or, or zonal feedback, where I choose one specific area, and I want you to improve that one thing because if I mark the entire essay, um, you're going to get lost. I'm going to get lost in, in ticking and flicking and doing all sorts of things when I ultimately just want you to, to fix one thing. So it's a bit of like a find and fix. Um, so the yellow box is a great strategy. Um, I think it works in most subjects if for day-to-day -day marking to reduce the workload, to increase impact. Um, and more importantly to make sure that whatever strategy you, you're, you are using whether it's live marking or or zonal or yellow box uh, zonal marking in 
great classroom ideas work when kids know it's a routine or they know it's coming. I think when you try one-off things, um, they don't necessarily work. So most teachers generally develop their own repertoire uh, and have their uh, list of strategies. Um, for me, um, live marking would be the number one and, and forget the camera. Um, me choosing four or five kids every lesson up to the front sit with me at the desk bang 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 that's it and so i don't have to take it home and if that becomes a routine kids expect it and if you can you know four or five lessons in a week with the same class then all of a sudden you've marked every kid's work and you're not taking it home that's great um in your book you write about the traits of an effective teacher uh, in your experience of lesson observations what are the main qualities that all good teachers share oh that's that's a good one um i you know, there's a, when I thought about this, when I wrote my second book, The Teacher Toolkit, I started to think, well, what would be the hallmarks of a teacher surviving? You know, uh, you might have to help me here in terms of the stats for Australia, but, you know, most teachers, uh, about 10% of teachers don't get to the end of their first year in training, and then about 40, 50% don't reach their fifth year. Yeah, we're pretty we're pretty similar here as well. Yeah, apparently yeah. it's that fourth um, year. Yeah, okay, so... You know, I would imagine that's the same in lots of countries. Now, I've met lots of colleagues who've done 40, 50 years, so I'll guess I'm kind of maybe on the other, you know, the side where I'm well experienced, having reached 25 years. Um, but I really started to think what would be the hallmarks of, regardless of what phase of your career, um, whether you're new to teaching, new to middle leadership, or new to senior leadership. And 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 I thought about it in this sense: um, the first year, you need to be resilient. So you need to experiment, learn from your failures, be reflective. Um, you know, once you pretty much survive your first year, the, the, the second year you start to be a bit more thoughtful. So, you know, not not saying it's an intelligent process, but um, I can't, in my second book, I've got five words, resilience, intelligence, innovative, um, collaborative, and aspirational. And if I just unpick them, the first one, you need to be resilient. Second one, you can think more intelligently about the things you're doing, uh, refine your techniques. As you get more confident, you start to be innovative. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean technology, but you might get immersed with a bit of research. You might trial different strategies within your own classroom or department. And then generally what happens is, you know, after that third or fourth year, once you've got that repertoire, you start to collaborate and share. Or someone notices something great that you're doing and you're asked to explain it a bit more in your department or across the whole school. And I think when people get to that stage, they then start to aspire to share it to the next level. Um, you know, whether that happens in your fourth or fifth year, you know, it's not exclusive, but um, that's generally what I see the cycle. And then, you know, in your fourth or fifth year, if you do reach a new um, kind of a level of responsibility in your school, a, a new promotion, for example, I think the cycle repeats. You've got to be tough in your first year of middle leadership. Then you think more intelligently. Then you get a bit more innovative, take risks. Then you start to share. And then you might go into – and I think it, it's a it's a nice way of looking at generally the cycle of your teaching career. But obviously within those are all the typical teacher characteristics, you know, great listener, a bit of humor, discipline, you know, firm but fair, all those kind of things. So, yeah. Um, now, obviously – Tapping back into your experience uh, in being in leadership, what do you think it takes for um, teaching to develop and to thrive in a school? So, sorry, good teaching. Uh, across the whole school, um, it's got to start at the very top. Um, and that 
in a flip model starts from um, allowing teachers to have a voice. Um, so Mark Plan Teach evolved through a hundred teachers having a say in what the policy would look like. And if we said yellow box or green box or pink box, we would thrash it out and we would trial it and then we'd come back to it. So it very much evolved from the top by giving people that collective voice. Um, and then I think the critical thing in if I think of some of the head teachers, they live and die by their what they say. You know, they don't tuck away in the corridors. They're out at lesson changeover. They'll, you know, if you're having a bad day, they'll step in. They'll tell it you to go home. They'll cover for you. Um, it, it, it's kind of it's doing the two things. It's from grassroots up, but also top down, where top people are modelling. And and that's also quite a difficult thing to do because you know school leaders take on. You know, school leaders, generally, the, the greatest ones do their own work after school hours when everyone else has gone home because the rest of the day is it's making sure hours. that everyone's surviving um, and thriving in their day. So, you know, managing kids on corridors, uh, tears in, in department offices, uh, collaborating behind the scenes for weeks or months in advance for this one, one CP or professional development day that's happening where it might be you or me speaking with our colleagues for the first time. So you're not only managing uh, to make it a powerful event, but you're managing the member of staff's emotions about speaking in front of the peers for the first time. So it, it's very complicated, but the, a great teachers kind of bring their staff along the way and show them the ropes. Um, but also i guess hide away all the complexities of school life such as safeguarding um all the nasty things that you might see publicly um or parent arguments or you know fight all these things that go on in school it's it's hiding them away from day-to-day -day life or or also sharing those things with staff on our need to know basis so that they also feel part of the communication thread there's nothing worse when staff are aware of something but nothing's communicated um, it, it suddenly creates a them and us, and, and I don't think that's very good for culture. That's a great answer. Thanks for that. Um, we know your book is heavily backed up with research and psychological perspectives. Do you yeah. think it's important for teachers to be familiar with educational research and cognitive psychology? Um, yeah, I guess because last 10 years writing blogs has allowed me to accidentally discover it, and, 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 and I guess what it, it's also challenged me to to be immersed with it but the the the, it, the issue is teachers don't on uh, have time um now there's two things here one schools need to facilitate time for staff to be immersed whether it's action research or every wednesday you read a book in a book club um but also there's a you know once i qualify as a teacher that can't be it for the rest of my career there's an obligation or a professional duty for me to want to be the best that I can be, whether I'm a doctor or a pilot, a teacher or whatever it would be. Now, you think of the teachers that you work with, there'll be some that are hungry and want to do, do a lot, and there'll be a mixture of people that live and breathe teaching 24 seven, versus people that get a bit of sick of Ross always talking about teaching, or you know, turning every conversation back about the classroom, You know, even when you're out with friends at dinner. So there's a level of, degree of how much you get immersed with it but also the, the best teachers know when to switch off um but i think so, so so there's two things one school's facilitating that secondly also teachers as an, as an individual not just being qualified 
but having that bug to want to learn. Um, I guess going back to my point about social media, it's allowed me to have my ideas critiqued immediately with teachers from Australia rather than me waiting when my colleague in the office next door to me is free after they've taught a lesson, I get immediate feedback. Along the lines through social media exposure and as we want to be a bit more um, aware of evidence and action learning and cognitive psychology, it goes back to that cliche, how do we learn? And, you know, to understand the brain, would, you know, none of us know where we really are with that. Uh, we're, we're miles away. Um, you know, once the scientists get there, then then that might filter into psychologists and then it might filter down into to us as teachers to impact that on the classroom. And then it might get to kids and parents after that. So, but I think we're 100 years away from even getting close to some of like that. So we can only try our best. Um, and I think... As we connect more with psychologists, counsellors, you know, specialist support uh, that look after our kids in the schools, um, that's really healthy for us as teachers. But it cannot be left alone to Ross, who's really wanting to, to learn, versus Ross, who's a bit grumpy and a bit bored with it all. Schools have to facilitate a time for staff to be immersed with that. So there's lots of ways they can do that. I can explore that if you want to in, in another question. Oh, you can go on and explore that at the moment yeah, if you'd like. Uh, please do. <laughs> ideas that I've done, ideas that I've done. So uh, the Wednesday afternoon was something that we put in place. So we consulted parents. Um, we sent kids home after lunchtime. Um, we kept some kids behind in facilities to do homework and revision. But largely every Wednesday, there was an opportunity for staff professional development. Sometimes that was every all the staff together. So in the beginning of Mark Plan Teach, that was the case. But... Every other week, it was often to departments to trial ideas, uh, to come back with feedback or to collaborate with, with different departments. Um, or also where staff could go out and immerse themselves outside of school with different schools or on a kind of long-term qualification. Um, so we did things like that. We also had something simple as a CPD menu, which is basically like a you know, getting a menu from your local curry shop uh, or, your, or your kind of takeaway where you can just see what's available. So if I'm a new member of staff or I'm too shy and I don't want to talk to Mr. McGill, the grumpy deputy head, then at least I know what the school will fund me for. Uh, and that kind of generates a conversation. So suddenly when that was published, it opened up lots of people coming to me to talk about their professional development. And it was just brilliant to, to have so many people. Um want to talk about being better and, and I think by sharing that online I think that impacted on lots of other people just that simple idea but um, another great idea was speed dating um, so you think um, I'm not being on speed dating but um, the, the concept is you face one another at a desk and every three minutes you move around so using that idea in a kind of professional development sense bring teachers together to talk about their teaching practice and what ideas work and it's a bit of fun and you can get people to vote but the, the principle was that um, you have all every teacher facing one another and you rotate every every couple of minutes you swap an idea um after about 20 or 25 rotations every staff votes the top three and the person with the first top one one vote or, or top votes uh kind of get prizes or maybe the first idea um is that what when we first did it is we committed to rolling out that idea as a whole school teaching and learning strategy because it was apparent that a lot of people really liked it um, so just a way, a great way of facilitating discussions. Um, the most powerful professional development sessions that I've led or been part of is when staff talk about teaching. 
um, and we don't do it enough. And it's developing subject pedagogy, it's developing your knowledge, um, rather than you come and listen to an event where one person at the front, generally a school leader, says this is what you need to do. Um, it's much better coming from people that are living it day to day saying, I've tried this idea, this is what works, what do you think, let's critique it. Um, so they're, they're just two little ideas, but there's, there's many more. Those are great ideas though. Yeah, it's funny, we actually have something quite similar to that at our school that we've started this year called the 15 minute forum. And it's on Wednesday yeah. mornings before school, just yeah. teachers, all different teachers, just elect to talk about something that they're interested in. Yeah, and um, yeah, yeah there's good. a light breakfast provided and it's it's just like a sort of a, a very casual, yeah. low key, uh, but very useful PD. So yeah, it was really yeah. nice hearing all that stuff, reaffirming what we're doing. It's um, voluntary and you know, great, It'd be great to get a, a full room where you've got too many people and you have to open it up to a bigger room. But, um, you know, not everyone can make first thing in the morning or, you know, yeah. so it's kind of facilitating different windows. Um, some staff might want to do it in the afternoon. You've got part-time teachers, people with young kids that have got to pick them up from school. So, yeah, it's, it's creating that culture where it becomes commonplace, um, where, where people can have a voice. And, and what I'm starting to notice is a lot more teachers um, are getting more confident about sharing because blogs tweeting their own ideas getting feedback suddenly 100 people liking your your resource gives you the confidence to share it um people are quite scared about talking to one another in front of their peers um do you, you have teach meets over in australia as well don't you so you know that that's a nice forum where people can come together informally just to share ideas so i, I see a lot more teacher confidence evolving um through the use of social media as well great yeah definitely i agree with that um well, Ross, I got to say, uh, Tess and I have definitely been able to take away a lot from this. It's been extremely insightful. Yeah, and, and Thank look, thanks again so much for talking to us. Um, yeah, we're—I mean, Michael and I are all about you know saving time, but also doing yeah. right by the kids. And you've encompassed that really, really nicely. Thank you. Thank you. No, it's been my pleasure. Yeah, look, um, just to remind our listeners as well, could you please um, tell us about your website and where they could find a copy of your book? Um, so the website is teachertoolkit.co.uk um, on all the social media channels as you would expect um, and uh, Mark Plan Teach can grab on Amazon um, I'm sure there's an Australian version um, if you can't find it send me a tweet or, or send me an email um, via the Teacher Toolkit website and I'll point you in the right direction um, a lot of the ideas are already um, in the blog in different forms um, you know, dating back to 2007 or 8, I think, when I first started the blog. But um, I guess in the book, they've all been revamped and updated and brought into a nice, tidy little book with, with lots of links to research and, and psychology, which makes it, um, I, I think, uh, quite accessible. And, you know, the chapter-by-chapter chapter summary allows people to read a chapter. And, and I think that gets people's brains buzzing enough, never mind the whole book. So um, um, I hope people enjoy it. Thank you and so much. I look forward much. to going to Australia one time. Hopefully, I can get over soon. Oh, you are more than welcome to come. Perth's just the other side over from Brisbane, though. So you've got to yeah, take. Yeah, I've got, I've got oh, my best friend's family's in Perth as well. So I've got a lot of people. So it makes sense for me to come over soon. So, it's only a six-hour uh, yeah, flight from Brisbane. It's not too far. <laughs> it's actually winter at the moment. It's about know, 26 degrees. Over, yeah. <laughs> it's really nice weather at the moment. I don't mind the weather. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thanks so much again, Ross. Like we said, it was very insightful and some amazing ideas and tips for us as young educators and also just anyone within the teaching industry. Yeah, thank you. Just give us a shout. If you need anything, I'll, I'll happily help post a video or, or if people want things explained, I'll happily do that. 
Oh, thank Amazing. you. You're a legend. Thank Thanks you so much. much. Have a great day. Enjoy the rest thank of your you. day. Our day is almost over. <laughs> See you, mate. So, Tessa, we've just finished our interview with Ross McGill, and I think both of us can say we gained a lot from it. Um, what are some of the takeaways you've taken from it? Oh, so much. Um, as a as a new teacher, a lot of what he was saying was resonating with me, um, but particularly that cycle he was discussing about, you know, in your first year, you've got to be resilient. And my first year was last year, and I definitely had to have, be resilient. And then your second year, you know, you've you've got to start to sort of consolidate and then you can sort of be more curious and sort of think about what else you can do and then after that you can start to take risks and I can really see that sort of coming through in the way that I'm teaching and yeah that was just it was just really nice to reaffirm that you know that's that's the way it should be going yeah how about you Michael um yeah great point by you but I was also thinking about the whole idea of us double handling or uh triple marking as he called it because um, I think we take it for granted a little bit, except it's something we do so often because it's been so instilled in our practice. But if we just mark smarter and not harder, like he was talking about as well, then all of our lives will be a hell of a lot easier. Yeah, like marking in class. I've done that a few times with um, with live marking and it just takes the workload right off. And then you can, you know, make, make your lessons more engaging, look more into your knowledge. Um, you've, just, you've just got time to do more, which... It's also going to help your well-being as well. Yeah, exactly. And even the verbal feedback part of it, because I mean, I I think we've both done verbal feedback before, but uh, him breaking it down, I've never really seen the benefits, you know, be that great before because I've always, well, not always, except done a little bit too much written feedback. So it's definitely something I'm going to be approaching a little bit more in my practice. Yeah, and the way he likened it to like talking to his kids and how much they, you know, he tells them to do something, they do it. So why shouldn't it be the same with his students? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, great. Thanks so much for listening to The Staff Room. And thanks to our guest, Ross Morrison-McGill. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, my handle is at Michael underscore Royale and Tessa's is at Tessa underscore Johnson too. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast on either iTunes or Stitcher and feel free to leave a review and give us any feedback on the show. This has been the third episode of The Staff Room. Listen out for episode four, which will be available shortly. I'm Michael Royale. And I'm Tessa Johnson. Thanks for listening.